Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today is the first installment of a three-part series on gender and education leadership, conversations highlighting prominent women transforming the field. First guest was featured in Newsweek's 2001 report on the women of the 21st century as, quote, the kind of woman who will shape America's next century. She is co-founder and chief executive officer of Bellwether Education Partners. Welcome to the EdCast, Kim Smith. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Kim, about 10 years into the century, how is that shaping going? Wow, that's a big question. Um, There is a lot of action, a lot of changes emerging that people are just starting to get their heads around, both globally and locally. So um, I feel like it's a good time. I feel like there's a new generation of young people emerging and changing the shape of this century as well. So... Um, things are on the move. I'm curious, what is it that you're doing specifically right now that is hoping to cultivate that new generation of young people to to help out uh, educational entrepreneurship? Yeah. Um, I often think back to the time when we started Teach for America, which is over 20 years ago now, and remember that at that time, people were talking about our generation as a generation of selfish young people who didn't want to give back, didn't want to change the world, which is obviously untrue. And I think that the world is grappling right now with understanding the millennials. So I I don't have a nice crisp answer for you, but what I would say is I feel like people do see and understand that this generation of millennials are thinking globally. They do care a lot. They have very high expectations for being able to do well and do good at the same time. So I think things that for my generation, I'm 44 now, and when I was coming out of school, people thought combining, doing good things for the world and making a living seemed like they were in conflict. I think for millennials, the two things that they have integrated much better than any other generation are doing good things in the world while making a living and um, integrating technology in a much better way. It's sort of seamless for them. And maybe there's really three. And I also think they have very high expectations for their family lives. So I I feel like they're setting a very high bar for how to have an integrated life with family, using technology as a good tool, um, and thinking about their impact on the world. So I, I have really high hopes, actually. And I think we're all just wrestling with, okay, what does that mean? How do we reshape things so that it really they're able to have the biggest impact that they want to have. It's sort of cadre of balanced, fulfilled up-and-comers. Yeah, it's kind of Maslow's hierarchy. They keep moving up the pyramid and setting the bar high for all of us to figure out how to make that possible. Now, you started so many different organizations, and you've done a lot of actual research on social and educational entrepreneurship. If you're the expert on an educational entrepreneurship, how would you define what that is? Who can say they're an educational entrepreneur? Well... We wrote a paper maybe 10 years ago where we talked about their qualities um, and the fact that they would sit in new organizations. And I think my thinking has evolved on that to focus much more on the principles and the qualities and less on where they sit. So strictly speaking, an entrepreneur would start a new entity, company, or nonprofit. Really what I think is most important, though, is to focus on the underlying principles of the way they behave. They have a real sense of urgency. They have a vision for doing things a different way that's not constrained by the kind of current norms or the current expectations or even the current resources. So they sort of think outside the box and they have this action orientation that just gets things done. And more often than not, you'll see that in starting new organizations because that's where they'll have the necessary degrees of freedom to do all that. But increasingly, we're seeing education entrepreneurs go into 
the um, districts or states or other policy positions and try to bring that worldview into a different environment and think through how do we have that kind of urgency, that kind of passion, that kind of vision in a way that gets to real action and real outcomes, even if it's not in a brand new organization. So you have Bellwether, you have Teach for America, you have New Schools Venture Fund. You've been a large part of all of those, founder, leader. Uh, what makes you continually want to move on and, and change and start new organizations? Why not just find one good new idea and stick with it? Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for sticking with something. And I don't move um, from organization to organization in a way that's um, I'm not a dilettante. I do believe in building very strong organizations. And when I move, I'm very conscious of making sure there's a very strong team and infrastructure to carry an organization forward. But <clears throat> for me, a big piece of each organization um, has to do with the timing of what's going on in the world and something I think is missing from this movement. So with Teach for America, we had this whole group of people who think in a different way who are not yet in the movement. I then actually went and started an AmeriCorps program in part because I wanted to learn about the youth development aspect, which was outside of schools. Um, I did a business startup to really understand the private sector because I hadn't really had an experience there and I wanted to understand what it was like to run a business. Then with New Schools Venture Fund, we wanted to create a movement out of a set of individual entrepreneurs who are not by nature joiners. So they were, like the whole was not greater than the sum of the parts and we wanted to help coalesce that movement. Then I, to be totally honest with you, and this goes to the gender point we'll come to later, really needed to step back and focus on building my family, growing my family. I have two young daughters right now, um, and that was part of the transition out of new schools. And part of our goal with Bellwether is to continue to focus on thought leadership and building the capacity of the people and organizations in our field, but to do it in a virtual nonprofit that gives us more flexibility in order to have our families where our lives are. So. It's been a sort of organic evolution, and I guess I would say it's partly about what I am learning and where I think I can contribute best, and it is partly that as you build and grow strong organizations and other people step in to be what I think of as sustaining leaders, because I, I do feel that entrepreneurial startup leaders have a different set of characteristics than good sustaining leaders, and it is good if those two kinds of people can really value each other's strengths and make a nice transition so that organizations can move from the sort of somewhat chaotic period of startup into a much more stable, sustaining period. And I'm not as good at that as I am at the startup. Now you have your MBA from the West Coast Harvard, and you've chosen to work <laughs> you've chosen to work in education. You've said before, educators and business people, they don't speak the same language. Right. I'm bilingual. Now, how can each sector be more fluent? And it seems like you're almost creating a separate sector looking at the business of education in some respects. In some respects, yeah. Um, we were pretty explicit at the beginning of new schools that we were trying to create um, hybrid leaders that were the folks who could do that bridging, who understood the way people thought and spoke in the different sectors. Um, and I think increasingly, we do have a robust group of those hybrid types who really can walk across the sectors, who sometimes will be in public sector positions, others nonprofit, and others in the business world. And it really is um, 
really astounding how um, capable these people are. We have begun to see people really move across all three of those sectors in a way that's quite facile and really impressive. And I, I think it's those folks who are the bridgers who will help us connect. Um, and part of our thinking behind it was that the problems we're facing are so huge and complex. We can't really do it if we only have a tool set from one sector. You need policy, you need management of large enterprises, and you need the social mission to focus on the outcome. So it was sort of, um, like a lot of entrepreneurial things, I think it was really pragmatic rather than ideological. It's not so much that we think you must be cross-sector to be good. It's more that we just have to get the best thinking from across them to solve these problems. Um, you know, you can spot curves. There's like a bell curve for how they communicate, you know, a little more quantitative in the business side, kind of more analytical generally, um, better with relational stuff in the nonprofit sector, big systems thinking. If it's done well, public policy involves big systems thinking that sometimes the others don't do so well. So you can track patterns, but um, increasingly I'm seeing individuals who um, cut across those patterns in a way that's really quite helpful. I'm wondering as the sort of new field, the new hybrid um, evolves, is it less you speak your language, you, I speak your language, and where you're bilingual, or is it you, you're almost more creating a separate new language? Yeah, it's possible. It, it really is possible. And that, that may go back to your earlier question about the millennials. Maybe it's a generational thing where for my generation, the generation before me, they were very siloed and totally separate. For my generation, it was the hybrid mixing where people picked one or the other, but then kind of crossed over. And possibly, I think you're right, with the millennials, maybe we'll just emerge with this more integrated view that it is a new language that takes the best from all of them. I think that'd be great. You're a panelist today at Harvard for our forum, Does Gender Matter in Education Leadership? I'm curious, what is the answer to that question? Have you experienced that it does matter either for your benefit or for your detriment? I guess the way I think about it is a little bit more kind of how does it matter and how much does it matter. I think it matters, but I don't know that it is the top of the list of what matters for me. I will say that um, it does concern me a little that in education we have a workforce of 75% women, the principalship is about 50% women, and the superintendency is about 22%. So you really see this upside down triangle. With the nonprofit world, 73% of the workforce are women. CEOs are about 45%. But when you slice it for organizations that are 25 million or larger, that goes down to 21%. And men are still making a lot more than women in those leadership positions. Um, when I thought about our own portfolio of entrepreneurs, out of 45 or so portfolio organizations, we have about 14% that were led or co-created by women, which is about 30%. So we're not that far off those other trends. But I guess I find it a little bit disconcerting just because I feel like it means we're not tapping um, a big pool of leaders. And we have a real leadership shortage in our field. So again, it's less ideological and more pragmatic if what's I want to better understand what's holding folks back, and I think in some ways it's the issue around parenting um, and the way we're constructing jobs. And if we can figure out ways to fix that, it might let us tap a really rich group of leaders. Um, that's somewhat what we're trying to do with Bellwether, in part by being virtual, by being much more flexible. It's allowed us to have um, a group of leaders who are at a point in their life where they need that flexibility. So I'm hopeful we can begin to do that in other kinds of organizations. Because um, I do think it's an issue 
we, we desperately need more great leaders because we're at a time of incredible transition and challenge, and we just can't get through it without great leaders. And if we're only tapping you know, half of the pool, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You talked earlier about work-life balance and being able to be quite successful professionally, but also have a family and have children. How have you been able to balance that? And, and for our listeners, what are, what are some tips for someone to be as successful as you are, yet also have a family? Well, I have to be honest with you, a lot of it for me is my husband's a stay-at-home dad, um, which is not an easy thing to do, even though I think in New York and maybe here, it's pretty accepted, but we live actually out in Napa where my husband grew up, which is a relatively rural area, or, or at least agricultural. Um, and I look around at some of the women I know who are in my sort of leadership cadre, and quite a few of them have husbands who are stay-at-home dads. So that's great because we feel like we are investing our collective time and energy in our family and our kids, but still pursuing a career. So that's one path. I think where it's hardest is two career families and figuring out how do you have two career families with two people super passionate about their work and do right by your own kids as well as the kids we're trying to serve out in the community. And I think that's a real struggle, a real struggle. And I hope we can figure out some better ways to handle it as a field, part of which honestly I think has to do with really stepping back and rethinking the career pattern we're setting up where the kind of height of your career activity happens to be kind of the height of the child raising years, which doesn't make a lot of sense, and frankly doing a much better job of early childhood education and um, daycare, right? Like one of our fellows, program I do to support leaders, one of our fellows um, runs some elementary schools and they built daycare into their schools. And he had a huge influx of talented teachers coming for jobs at that school because they thought, well, I could have my young children right here. So some things are mechanical like that, I think, and other things have to do with maybe more conceptual work about just rethinking career trajectories, but I think we have to do it on kind of both fronts. Is that something that happens uh, naturally? Was it something that you had seen with your family or other groups about how to model that balance? Because I feel like some people might get a great job and then not know what to do with children and family and or to not take that job and go on maternity leave. How, how does that, did you struggle in the process of finding that balance? Yeah, I struggled a lot and I wouldn't necessarily claim I've found it even, but I think um, my mother gave me some really amazing advice. Both of my parents work. My father's a professor, and my mother was a special ed elementary school teacher. And um, when I was in college, not really understanding these issues yet, to be honest, one of the things she told me and kept saying consistently is, you can have everything, you just can't have it all at the same time. So that was helpful in the sense that it set my expectations, and I got to a place in my career where I realized I had done many of the things I wanted to do professionally, but I hadn't prioritized my family. And there I could make a conscious decision to do that, but it was quite difficult because there really are sacrifices. And that is, I guess, what maybe we can hope the millennials help us figure out with this new integrated approach is how can we construct it in such a way that it isn't quite as much of a zero-sum game? Um, because I don't think we've done a good job of that. I think at this point, Either you're really focused on your career and your kids suffer, or you're in the middle balancing and your career is suffering. Um, or, and not just career from a standpoint of ego, but more from the standpoint of what you can contribute to make the world a better place. So I think we have some work to do, but um, I do feel like we have a much better um, 
environment to talk about these things. Though I want to say I do think it is still really hard for men to do that. And you mentioned that you had Andy Rotherham on recently, and he's a partner in our firm. And I will say, in addition to being brilliant, one of the things I love about Andy is he is a man who is willing to say, like, I, he is the full-time breadwinner for his family, but he cares about prioritizing time with his kids, and that's part of why he's at Bellwether, to have that flexibility. We have found, as we've gone out to expand the firm and bring in other partner-level people, that that is far more likely to be said by women than men. So part of it is, I think, just having an environment where it's okay to care about that, regardless of your gender. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, if, is, that, is that imbalance, is this an American issue? Because I feel like a lot of, and this is anecdotally, it seems like the, the work-life balance in, in, say, Europe yeah. seems to be better. <laughs> and in the companies that you're helping to incubate and, and all the, the nonprofits you've helped start up, it seems like a good start is to, right from the beginning, yeah. share that value system. Yeah. I do think there's a tension between urgency and balance. Um, and so part of the problem in our field is there's such a sense of urgency around how many children's lives are at stake and how going slower means just so many children not getting a fair shake. That urgency you know, conflicts with the desire to have balance, largely because we just don't have enough people in the movement, right? Um, but I do think you're right. When I think about the underlying tensions, um, there's a great um, Aspen Institute seminar called the Aspen Seminar. And one of their great moderators, um, James O'Toole, wrote a book called The Executive's Compass, which talks about deep values and tension. And two points of that compass are efficiency versus community. And then the other is liberty and equality. <clears throat> but the tension you're talking about is between efficiency and community, really. And I do think in the US, we have perhaps overshot the mark towards efficiency. And the tension is to try to figure out how can we bring community back in without overshooting in the other direction. But I think you're right. It is more of a struggle here than in a lot of places um, culturally. Last question, and thank you so much for finding time to be with us today. Uh, growing up, or even now, who are some of your role models in female leadership, business, politically, educationally? It's a fascinating question, because when you posed it earlier, I realized I don't really have many female role models, to be honest with you. M most of the people I think of as role models are men. Um, not so much because the the fact that they are men, but more just because of what they did. Um, and so I think it really is making me think a lot about that. I did work in high school and college. I worked with a woman who started her own business focused on business education partnerships. So in a lot of ways, she was a mentor for me. Um, but most of the true kind of like role models, um, like Miles Horton, who started the Highlander Folk School, who really thought about a movement and how to contribute to helping people make a difference in the world. Um, there's folks like that who I think of as a role model for the way I think of my contribution to the world, but um, it's mostly men, and I, I'm not quite sure what to make of that, to be honest. Well, Kim, I'm sure after listening to this EdCast, many people now look to you as a role model. Uh, thank you so much for appearing on the show, and uh, have a good, good forum today uh, at Harvard. Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.